Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lifting the Fog, a podcast that hopes to become a collection of conversations offering support and connecting individuals affected by childhood cancer. This week, I sat down with Kathy Kirkpatrick. Um, Kathy, similarly to myself, works within pediatric hematology and oncology to support patients and their educational needs. Um, So she acts as a liaison between the child's medical team and the patient's school to just help facilitate and navigate um, and really partner with um, a, a patient's school to create the best school plan possible. So Kathy recently published an article on school belongingness after years of extensive research and working within the in the field and with children with chronic health needs. And as soon as I got my hands on this publication and read through it, I just knew I had to have her on the podcast um, and talk more about this really um, important topic. Also, I will put a link to this article in our show notes and encourage all of our listeners to read because... Um, While her findings are not super surprising, right, because we know that school belongingness is important for all children, um, it is super interesting to look at the data and see how impacted children with chronic health needs really are when trying to maintain that school belongingness. Um, So in this week's episode, you will hear Kathy and I talk about what is school belonging, why is it so important? What are the barriers in achieving this for children with chronic health needs? And how can we support teachers and school staff and and really the entire school community in maintaining school belongingness for children um, and especially children with with chronic health needs? Um, And as always, you know, we've done it the last couple of episodes and we're going to continue to do it because I feel like it's so important. Um, So much can be done through children's literature and sharing um, and re- books and reading with children. Um, so this week's featured children's lit is another picture book, um, and it's entitled Same Same But Different, written by Jenny Sue Kanatsky Shaw, and it's a story about two little boys from different sides of the world who become friends um, while sharing what makes them same, same, but different. So it's a wonderful story on honoring our differences and recognizing our similarities. It's a favorite for me as a parent. I read this off one with my little four-year-old and it's a great conversation starters for littles on, um, what they notice about the, um, what they notice, excuse me, about the differences, um, and similarities amongst their friends and people in their community. And again, as always, you can find more children's lit, um, like same, same, but different and to have those intentional conversations about race inequalities, kindness and inclusiveness all on socialjusticebooks.org. So with that being said, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. And as always, please email us at liftingthefog1 at gmail.com with questions, comments, and thoughts for future conversations. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at liftingthefog1, and that's the number one. Um, All right, y'all, without further ado, Dr. Kathy Kirkpatrick. All right. Good afternoon, Dr. Uh, Kirkpatrick. Thanks so much for joining us today. Good afternoon. So in today's podcast, I'm joined by uh, Dr. Kathy Kirkpatrick. Kathy, you have your PhD, you're a licensed social worker, and you do similar work um, 
as I do, in that you are an educational coordinator um, with the HEMOC population at Nationwide Children's. I am. Yeah. yeah. How long have you been doing that work? I've been doing the education liaison, the education coordinator role for about 14 years. Um, and prior to that, I practiced as a clinical social worker at the hospital. At that same hospital? Mm-hmm. Oh, wonderful. In pediatrics. Um, so recently, I'd say like a little over a month ago, a colleague of mine had forwarded on a recent um, article that you had published, Adolescents with Chronic, chronic Medical Conditions and um, High School Completion, The Importance of Perceived School Belonging. And I can post a link for our listeners to, to be able to read this article in the show notes. Um, but I, I had read the article and I had forwarded it on to um, one of the oncologists that I work with. And he said, I know her <laughs> and she's so wonderful. And um, so I'm so glad that we got connected because I thoroughly enjoyed reading the article, but um, I'm excited to talk a little more about it. So I wonder if we can just start today's conversation with you explaining a little bit to us and, and to the listeners, what really is school belonging School belonging is, is a student's perception that they are um, that they have a place that they belong to the community of school, and belonging in general is something that is sort of something we all need as humans, and we all need them in different communities. And for children and adolescents, their primary community outside of home is school. So having a sense that they are a part of that environment, they're part of the community, they have a role to play, and that they're valued is, is important. So what does that look like for kids in the oncology or hematology world? Certainly you think of, um, you know, each, each diagnosis has a different um, treatment path. Um, some of our kids that we work with are on treatment for three years, and that can mean substantial amounts of time outside of school. So how can you have any school belonging um, when you're missing so much school? Well, and that is something that we talk about from the very beginning, from the point of diagnosis, both with the family and with the school. But we want to make sure that the students still have an avenue to feel like they belong to their school community. So maybe the classroom reaches out to them um, in elementary school. Maybe they share a journal back and forth between the classroom and the, the student who's at home. Or in high school, sometimes the, um, the kids will continue to have connections with their bandmates or with their teammates, people who um, have a, a, a high, a significant role for them in the, in the school setting. Um, it takes effort on the part of school staff for that to happen um, because obviously teachers are um, have a lot of work to do with the kids that are in front of them every day. And so finding ways to help those students maintain a connection with their absent peer is important. Um, continuing to have expectations for school work completion is helpful. Because if a student, you know, if the school says, oh, don't worry, when you feel better, we'll worry about school, then that student doesn't have a place 
um, to belong in their school. So maintaining high academic expectations with accommodations, of course, um, is a way to help the student feel like they are still a part of what needs to happen every day with school. But it, it takes a lot of effort. Yeah. And <clears throat> in your research, um, it wasn't necessarily just specific to oncology, correct? Um, you right, looked at right. all, you know, different kinds of chronic illness. Um, and certainly, like, a, you know, across the board, children that have chronic illness um, or medical conditions, um, whether they be, you know, quote unquote, I guess, on treatment or not, have barriers with school belonging? They do, because a lot of, of students who are struggling with um, chronic medical conditions miss more school. So they have more absent days. Sometimes they have um, symptoms of their disease or treatment like fatigue or um, pain that interfere with their ability to function mm -hmm. every day. Sometimes students with um, some conditions, you know, students with, who have seizures or students who have um, GI kinds of concerns sometimes struggle with embarrassment, worry that their peers will see an event that could embarrass them. Um, so across the board, students who are managing chronic medical conditions will miss more school and have more symptoms that interfere with their daily daily life. Um, so it can it can impact all of them. Yeah. Um, and so I'm hearing you talk about kind of the factors that would create those barriers to, to feel like they have school belonging. Um, attendance certainly was one. I'm sure that's a pretty substantial one. Um, and then you said like due to the, whatever the chronic condition is, like inability to, to function or participate, quote unquote, as their normal peers do. Um, right. What other factors are we are we missing that are key Sometimes components? Sometimes we have some anxiety or fear on the part of the adults in the picture. Oh, sure. Um, parents may be anxious and let their, you know, not want their student to participate to the full extent because they might worry that they will get sick or get hurt. Teachers also can have a high level of anxiety because they don't traditionally get a lot of, of training in how chronic medical conditions can impact learning or impact social interactions. And so they may feel anxious about how or what to do with the student. Um, sometimes we also see situations where the adults assume behavior um, concerns or motivation concerns when it's really um, fatigue or pain or slowed processing and you know a kiddo who's a sixth grader who's sitting there just looking at his paper when he's supposed to be writing an essay the teacher may think he's just being you know being a stinker and not doing his work when really he just can't figure out the first thing to do um, and has some processing or organization issues that are invisible and so they don't, the, the teacher doesn't always know because they might assume that a sixth grader is, is just being a sixth grader as opposed to a young person who's struggling with internal, invisible kinds of symptoms. And that can be true across the board with a lot of different 
medical conditions. You just, you know, in answering that brought up two good points that I wanted to talk to you about. One is certainly I work with a large majority of our neuro-oncology population and really across the board in oncology, kids can have deficits like with executive functioning due to treatment or surgery, radiation, but um, I feel like it's um, really prevalent. And of course, like I haven't done research or um, I I could look at the data, but um, my gut feeling is that I'm pulled a lot towards my neuro-onc kids and families and giving them support and and, um, their teachers support in understanding how to help um, with executive functioning deficits. Cause like you said, it's kind of this invisible thing and it's sort of hard to explain and it can come off as not being motivated or being lazy or disengaged. Um, so I wonder, you know, you've been at this, um, a while and have done a lot of really wonderful research. So what are some, I guess, tips of the trade, um, for people like me that are, um, I'm, I guess I'm five years into this field, but I, I sometimes struggle with getting that across when trying to advocate for our children. And I'm sure you can relate. It can feel a little frustrating for families and for us. Um, it's like, ah, gosh, why can't, why can't we get this as a team and, and support this kiddo? So kind of a loaded question, but what are your thoughts it, it on that? Can be, it can be tough. And I, I see it on two different avenues. Sometimes it's hard to convince parents that their child has cognitive light effects of their condition. Absolutely. Um, because they see a well child and want to put whatever the cancer diagnosis and treatment behind them. Um, so choose to either choose to or just don't look at their child's struggle as something that's related to their medical history. But once we get past that or or address that, typically we refer for a neuropsych evaluation anytime a kiddo is, is struggling um, with especially organization attention or other executive function kinds of skills mm-hmm. and then advocate with the school to you know directly to say this this kiddo is well physically but this is what the consequence of health history and Mm -hmm. this is what it looks like and sometimes just very explicitly saying to teachers or school counselors or um, folks who who need to be that student's champion at school um, you know this is what is happening so this is what you can do you know if he's just sitting there looking at his paper maybe what you need to do is help him make a, a list of First I do this, then I do that, and then I do that. And then they can get started um, and provide those structural supports. And so I pretty explicitly recommend those things to parents yeah. and teachers. Yeah. Um, and neuropsych um, evaluations are so wonderful because that's the data is right there, and it's black and white um, and, you know, give school lots of times really great suggestions on things that they can do or implement in the classroom to help support some of those needs. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I feel like the thing that works best for me is just trying to build relationships with school. So they see me as a trusted person Mm -hmm. trying to help 
them not tell them what to do but just try to be along for the ride this is you know none of us can predict what's going to happen next um so we're all in this together to support you know the the main objective is to support the child the patient um, yeah, i think that's critical and i think assuming that the school has the child's best interest in mind absolutely they may not have had this experience before and yeah are feeling at a loss about what to do yeah another thing that i think that in terms of belonging is that a lot of times when we have um, young people who are struggling with executive function um, deficits, they also can have some social interaction struggles. Mm -hmm. And so you'll have the kiddo at the lunch table who is you know, with his friends and somebody tells a joke and they're all laughing and he doesn't get it until, you know, 10 seconds later and then it's too late and they're gone. So there's a lot of social awkwardness or they don't get subtle social cues that other students, other young people might get and that can interfere with, with social relationships and it can interfere with the teacher too. The, yeah. You know, the adults that, why is this child not listening to me? Yeah. Um, and so pointing those things out is I think important too because then the teacher can help negotiate some of the social interactions if they see either bullying or um, ostracizing, they can, can intervene with that, understanding that that's all a part of that executive function struggle. Yeah, and there's, a, there's research to suggest, um, and recently just at the CEC conference this year, there were a few workshops um, and lectures on executive functioning and, t and talking about the research that is out there that suggests that um, sometimes those deficits seem more prominent in environments where the child uh, may feel anxious or not supported or not have good relationships. So maybe Johnny is in English and has a really great relationship with that teacher and some peers that they have, you know, he, Johnny has a friendship with. He feels comfortable to take risks and be a learner in that classroom and he does well. But then he goes to math and maybe doesn't have a good relationship or, um, you know, with with the teacher doesn't have peers and then we really see like processing speed and memory kind of come to the surface um and that can be kind of hard to advocate for because you could be at a case conference and the teacher's team say well he does well in these classes but how come not so much in these ones so it's pretty tricky and that's a, that's a place to introduce the whole idea that you know teacher relationships with students are a huge part of school belonging that when students have, when they feel safe at school, when they feel like they have positive relationships with adults, um, and you know they have a place, then they're they're going to to feel like they belong. So yeah. So kind of addressing that too, that you know, is there someone in the classroom that is a safe space for them to have as a partner? Maybe we direct that for a while until the competence or um, find ways to, to accommodate for that. Yeah. Um, and earlier as well, you had, um, you had mentioned that a lot of teachers don't have any formal training in how to support children with chronic um, medical needs. Um, I certainly didn't have any training. I'm a special ed licensed K through six, never had any training on how to support children um, with chronic needs. So um, 
I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle to to address and understand is that um, like when, when you mentioned earlier, parents and teachers can feel anxious about how do I best support this student? Um, so I don't know if, um, you know, in your years of experience, um, do you kind of start that initial conversation or starting a relationship with the school on just here's some information on how to best support a child like Johnny? Yes, that we do, I do. We send um, both written and verbal communication to the school to say these are some of the things that we might see. This is when we would say, you know, the threshold should be low for evaluating for 504 supports or, um, you know, formal um, intervention um, intervention team evaluation, those kinds of things that these are things that we would not be surprised to see. Certainly they don't happen for every student, but they are frequent enough that we want to keep our eyes open. And teachers have, have, are typically very responsive to that. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other piece of that is sometimes teachers are scared that there'll be a medical emergency in sure. the classroom and they won't know what to do. So the likelihood of that is certainly very small um, and so to reassure them that, you know, we wouldn't, the medical team would not be sending a child back to school if they felt like they were too fragile to go back to school. Yeah, or if so, it was unsafe in we, any way. Right, that we don't expect that, you know, you might have to wipe down their desks more frequently or make sure everybody's washing their hands, but now that we have, um, the days of COVID, you know, everybody has to do that anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think that really some of those pieces will be less different for our kids and the teachers will be on and all the school staff will be on high alert for wiping down surfaces and washing hands and covering coughs and all of that good stuff. Yeah. And I know that not every teacher is lucky enough to feel like they have a partner within the student's medical team to talk about these things with um, and talk through some of their anxieties or answer some of their questions. Not every hospital has educational liaisons or coordinators. Um, so what, what kind of advice, I guess, do you have for teachers that may not have this resource um, and feel anxious about how to support a not just oncology um, student, but any student with a chronic Ill illness. Even if there's not a formal, you know, school liaison on the medical team, obviously the child has a medical team. And so um, I think it's fair for teacher or school nurse or school counselor to reach out to the medical team and, and ask for information um, to maybe the, the nurse practitioner or maybe the social worker or another person on the team who would be a good link mm -hmm. um, could be that person. Um, there are also, um, you know, Leukemia Lymphoma Society has a, a back to school program, or, or I think it's called. Oh, I shouldn't. Know no, I think I think you're right. Is it back to school? It's they called, have. Well, it used to be called back to school. I think it's now it's called Making Connections or something. Like yeah, they have um, wonderful resources. And they just um, put together video modules mm -hmm. that any teacher can look at at any time. 
they're free. They get CEUs attached to, they have CEUs attached to them. And um, there's a lot of information in there that, and they have expanded that to include any child with any malignancy diagnosis. So um, it's not just leukemia and lymphoma anymore. Um, it's any diagnosis. So that would be a resource that any teacher in any any staff person could access. Um, and, and, and all of their resources are online and free, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, the Brain Tumor Foundation, I know they have um, online resources and videos. Um, sometimes I've used the why Charlie Brown, why video. It's a little dated, mm -hmm. but it's like a 20 minute, gosh, I think it's maybe a dollar on, on YouTube to find. Um, and I think the Leukemia Lymphoma Society can send you those for free, actually, the, yes. the DVD. Yes. But that's another great we, resource. We have created a little a book list for elementary age school teachers that are appropriate for, you know, talking about courage or talking about yeah. um, hair loss, having illness. Yeah, hair loss, those kind So that especially elementary age kiddos, um, the teachers, if they feel like their, their kids are very curious, they can find some children's literature that, that helps them talk to their peers. Because I can't imagine um, the school belongingness that a child would feel or lack thereof if even their own teacher didn't fully understand their needs. That's such an important part. But I'm glad that you mentioned that um, kind of the roles within the medical team that a teacher could ask a parent, hey, can I get in contact with a nurse coordinator or a social worker? Or is there an educational liaison? I think that's important to mention because if you not work, you know, if you've never worked in healthcare before, you might, okay, I know there's probably a doctor and a nurse, but who, who are the coordinators or who are the people that I could reach out to that have the time to set and answer some questions that I might have? And, and I think that coordinators are more typical in the oncology mm -hmm. world than they are with some of the other chronic conditions. But um, I know at our hospital, often the social worker will be the link to the school and will gather information from the medical team. So even, you know, student has diabetes or has, you know, whatever, um, there would be someone on the medical team who could give them information to help them feel comfortable about what to expect. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely think too about if the, if the teacher is anxious and afraid of the kiddo, if, if someone acts anxious or like they're not sure how to act around you, you don't feel very connected or very much like you're important to them. So, yeah, I mean, that's true for, for all of us as humans. If we feel like someone's edgy around us, we're not going to feel real connected. So um, it's important for, for the adults in the school to kind of be aware of those anxieties as well. Yeah, I was just... I just recently listening to a podcast uh, with a palliative care physician talking about the relationship between child and parent and how the children are so in tune to what the parents are feeling. Um, and, you know, sometimes parents being quite unaware of that. So you're just making me think of that, that, um, you know, if parents or or teachers or peers are anxious, that child feels that mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. And now with the, with video, um, you know, we have, we'll have teachers have 
you know, a Skype visit from the child who's at home into the classroom for morning circle, or um, we have used the um, video robots occasionally for um, kiddos to go to school with their robot. And that's, so there, are, there's lots of technology that's available. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Technology certainly so, helps. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. It does help a lot. And I think where you're at, um, so Kathy, you're at Nationwide. Um, do you right. guys do the monkey in the chair? We do do the monkey in my chair. Yeah. yeah. And we um, visit the classroom and take the monkey in the backpack and talk to peers at that point about all that their friend is experiencing, talk with them about, um, you know, the hair loss, the feeling too tired to come to school, but they still have to do schoolwork, those kinds of things, and um, make sure that the kids have a chance to ask questions and then leave the backpack and talk about ways they can communicate with their, with their friend regularly. Yeah, and we similarly, we do that, we, we call it the bear in the chair, but, um, mm-hmm. and the idea being that the bear or the monkey would sit in the child's uh, classroom chair and um, still, you know, be a reminder that that child's still a part of the class, even though they're not physically there. Um, and then we we similarly also do in-services, if you will, or we call them reaches, where we'll go and talk to peers or even teachers. Um, mm-hmm. But even if you know, that service wasn't available to a classroom teacher. They didn't have an educational liaison. Um, if they were able to talk to the child's medical team and get get the information they needed, um, you know, classroom teachers could certainly be having conversations about, you know, basic diagnosis info, right. related treatment. And sometimes they need to have the information so they don't feel so yeah. anxious about what to say to the kids. And school counselors are a great help. Oh, absolutely. Well. Yeah. Um, And in fact, over the last few years, I've noticed a change where schools, you know, they don't want to give up any instructional time Mm -hmm. or they feel a little uncomfortable with having someone from the outside, even if we're coming from the hospital, to come into the classroom. I will send my resources to the guidance counselor or um, the teacher directly and so that they have accurate information to share with their their kiddos. Yeah. and, pro- and provide peers, yeah. Provide peers an opportunity to ask questions because it never ceases to amaze me. Even talking to, you know, a fourth or fifth grade classroom and them asking things like, I- "I'm not going to catch it, am I?" Or, right. you know, and just those are really important questions that need to be answered so that when that peer is there, that people will want to sit next to them at lunch or play with them at recess and know that. They're just, they're a normal kid, just like you. Right. They just have this, this health condition. Um, right. Yeah. And I think that can be true with a variety of health conditions, obviously. Yes. We right now are going to the classroom to talk about a peer who has cancer, but, you know, that's, that can be true um, for young children across the board. Anybody who looks different or clearly has a, a medical issue they could be worried about contagion or they can be worried about a lot of things. Yeah. So, you know, equally too important to talk about, you know, the, the diagnosis and, and the treatment, but then just to talk about how can we support this friend? What can mm-hmm. we do to be mm-hmm. a good um, friend or be, you know, a strong community, a supportive community for our friend? Right. Yeah. And 
a lot of that depends on teachers too because some teachers will put just a lot of effort into it um <clears throat> i had one third grade classroom who actually created a book a class a class story and they took the um, monkey to everywhere like to the playground to the cafeteria to music class to um and then the little girl took it on her wish trip and so like it was just you know a year in the life of of the the monkey um and yeah so that's really was, great so but that takes a lot of work so, yeah um, yeah and other teachers will do the journaling i think a lot of teachers do the journaling where it, it gives kids practicing writing letters back and forth mm -hmm. um, or you know the whole journaling experience um, writing about what they did this week in school to send home to the friend and yeah. that that also helps maintain that connection yeah shows this the the student that has the chronic condition like i'm cared about and thought about when i'm not there like they didn't forget about me right? yes yeah right. So in all of your school belongingness um, research, um, was there anything that you found that, I guess both ends of the spectrum here, you weren't shocked by, or maybe, and then maybe that you were surprised by? Um, actually, I, I wasn't surprised. I expected to see that it would make a difference, both because belonging is part of our human need. Yeah. And because I had over the years as a social worker have seen a lot of students who just felt disconnected from their school around issues including their health. And so I had my, my hypothesis from the very, very beginning going in was that there was something to be found here, that there yeah. was something about chronic illness that impacted students' sense of belonging. And and then, you know, we know that having a sense of school belonging has an impact on outcomes. So um, it was it was a matter of, of figuring out how to look at that and see just what what panned out. So yeah, when for a long time. Yeah. So when students did not feel any school belonging, what what were the, I guess, poor outcomes of that? I'm sure it impacts they, them academically. If they don't feel like they belong, they will have more attendance, more early early um, withdrawal from school, might choose to do online school, which um, if, if a family's choosing online school to avoid brick and mortar school, that's not usually a good sign. If they're choosing for other reasons, you know, there may be reasons to choose online school, but um, choosing it to avoid the uncomfortable situation at a brick and mortar school isn't usually a good outcome. Yeah. Um, so yeah. kids are, are not graduating or um, are just not motivated to maintain academic progress, don't develop more long-term life goals, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up, that kind of thing. Um, but academically just do more poorly mm -hmm. if they are disconnected from, from school. I wonder also if you would agree or you think, you know, that your research would correlate with the idea of like, certainly, I'm, you know, if I think of leukemia, for example, they're on treatment for up to three years, sometimes it's such a substantial amount of time. Um, and there are certainly periods um, when on treatment that their, you know, oncology team wants them to be home. 
um, but then quite a bit of that time, hopefully, um, able to go. But sometimes I um, experience that when um, a patient and family are home and isolated for a, a significant period of time, of course, you know, and it makes total sense that jump to going back can seem really scary and anxiety inducing. Um, and so sometimes, um, you know, it's, it's just a lot of partnership and trying to get the student to feel like they can, they can go back. So whatever that means, if it's like yeah, the, the risk for school avoidance or school phobia kinds of things developing is, is really, I think pretty high. Um, I would say I see that more with middle school age students than younger ones, but um, yeah, the anxiety about what's gonna, how is it gonna be when I go back? Will my friends still sit with me at lunch? Or mm -hmm. will, you know, will I be able to catch up? Will I, and some of that I think is still the, you know, it's hard to keep up when you're catching up, when you're missing a lot of school or you're too tired to do your work after you've been at school all day and you have homework and you're too tired, mm -hmm. it's just really hard to catch up and keep up at the same time. Yeah. And so, um, and the same thing is true socially, I think. It's hard to catch up if you've been out of the circle for a little while um, to find your spot again and then to keep up because, you know, your friends might be, you know, going to the movie or going to the mall or going to here or there and you just don't have the energy to do that it's hard to get reacclimated with that that social group as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah. giving a lot of anticipatory guidance for families and and students is helpful. Um, encourage them look at like one on one play dates or you know have a friend come over to watch a movie on TV of going to the movies because they just don't have enough energy to do that. Mm -hmm. um, helping families know that they can find ways to, to work around that, um, I think is, is important. And I love how you said that anticipatory guidance. So just talking about, hey, you know, maintenance is approaching and we've, and you know, that might be a good time to, to start thinking about going back to school, but it doesn't have to mean Monday through Friday, you know, full days. Like, let's pick a couple days or are there some um, periods or subjects that you really enjoy that you'd like to go and just attend those for a couple hours right. a day? Going back partial days. And I typically recommend that kids try to go a short day every day as opposed to every other day because it's, they'll stay caught up in the classes that they're going to every day. Yeah. And maybe need home instruction for the rest, but if they're going every other day, um, they're missing classwork every other day. And so that can kind of amplify that keeping up piece of it. Um, and it's hard to maintain social connections if you're only in class every other day. So if you're only there for three periods, but you go every day, then you have those small places, small communities to develop your place in. Yeah, yeah, I would. I would definitely agree. Well, I wonder, um, you know, thank you so much for answering, you know, all of my questions. I feel like we've kind of zoomed through this, but it's probably <laughs> a topic that's super easy for you and I both to talk about because I think it's so, it's so important. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes I think it's, 
easy to assume or think like, oh my gosh, you know, you have a chronic health condition. Uh, just just focus on being well, focus on, on your health. Um, but school belongingness and school is a part of, you know, that it's a child's job. It's, it's super important to them. It's their social life and um, it's, it impacts their mental health. So it's mm -hmm. such an important piece to the puzzle and just overall wellness for for children. Right, right. Yeah, and to, to help adults in the, you know, to think about that too, about putting off school is a message that says, well, we don't know how, whether you're gonna get well or not, so we'll just put school on the back burner and that's not a good message to send to the kids. They need to know that we're, we're gonna keep you connected and keep you moving forward so that you're ready when you get well again. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, like I said earlier, I'm going to put uh, a link um, so that our listeners can read your your article on school belonging um, because um, it was a really great read and I enjoyed it. Um, and so, I guess too, how much, how many years of you know research and time went into into this? Well, I used an existing database to, to um, measure, you know, to use sure. to get the data. So that I didn't do that piece of it, but I mean, it was, it was all a part of my, um, my PhD work. So I, it, it took a while. It took a while. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's really great. And uh, I forwarded it on to a lot of oncologists that I work with. Uh, okay, good. Yeah. Cause it's just, it's. Uh, great work and um, super important information to share. The awareness of that piece of a child's being is is important for everybody to think about. That that's something we need to cultivate as well as their medical well-being. We need yeah. to cultivate their sense of, of being a part of a bigger community. Yeah. And in a dream world, um, you know, maybe down the road and the formal training for teachers there will be more especially especially special ed teachers but you know all teachers general ed teachers there'll be more formal training and how to support kids with chronic health needs and who to ask questions to um right. and you and know that would certainly be my my hope that that would become an element of the train of teacher training because most teachers are going to see you know quite a handful of, of students if you think that, you know, anywhere from like 12 to 20 percent or I can't remember exactly. I right think now, it's like 20%. I'm actually looking at it. Yeah. 20% um, of youth in the United States live with some it. sort of condition mm -hmm. that, you know, that's significant. That's a lot of kids. Yeah. yeah. And that they're going to cross paths with those students all through their career. Um, so understanding and not feeling anxious is pretty important. Yeah. Well, maybe Kathy, you and I can just hit, we can hit the road and and bebop around the United States and we'll do some workshops and talk to teachers about. <laughs> That'd be great. Well, I'm so glad that we got to do this today and um, so thankful for your time. Uh, we'll put a link to this article in the show notes. Um, and like we talked about earlier, um, if you're an educator and you're listening, um, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society um, ha has just a wealth of, of resources that are free. 
Um, and they're just so, they're super easy to work with. We pan out some of the resources in our clinic and I um, email them and say, hey, can you send me a hundred of these packets? And they, they do it on a dime when they, when they have it in stocks. Um, but there's lots of stuff that you can just print off or, that are PDFs just right there on their website. So, and it applicable really, you can swap out cancer for a lot of things. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, all right. Well, thanks so all much, right. Kathy. Thank thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Lifting the Fog. As always, please email us at liftingthefog1, that's the number one, at gmail.com. We want to hear from you with your questions, concerns, thoughts, and ideas for future conversations and topics to dive into. And subscribe, whether it's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, but subscribe and rate us. We would also love for you to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at liftingthefog1, and please hashtag us at hashtag liftingthefog. And as always, Lifting the Fog is an independent podcast. All information, thoughts, and opinions shared are for informational purposes only. No material on this podcast is intended to be substituted for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please always seek the advice of your qualified health provider with any questions that you may have. Thanks for tuning in.